grace, mercy, and peace to you on this holiest of nights from our Heavenly Father, from the Incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit, whose Word brought that Son into the flesh for our salvation. Amen. So, here we are, Christmas Eve again. One of those services that you can count on being considerably fuller than the typical Sunday morning. And that can be good and not so good, depending on how you look at it. On the one hand, it's certainly a wonderful thing that so many people feel drawn to worship and praise the Lord during this time of year, this Christmas season. It seems that some remember that it really is about something more than a glut of football games and gift-giving and commercialism and all that sort of thing. But you know, it does make you suspect sometimes that for some, just getting a little dose of Jesus a couple times of a year is all they think that they need or that they can stand. For the rest of the year, they seem to either ignore or enjoy their sinful state. And they steer clear of this place where God calls them to repentance and then gives out to them His gifts of grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration. So let me ask all of you a few questions as we begin this evening. Why are you here tonight? What made you step away from the normal rhythms of your Wednesday evenings and raise your attire up a notch or two and make the effort to get into the car and come to this place where God's Word will be heard, His praises will be sung, and His gifts will be received? Why are you here tonight? Furthermore, who are you here tonight? I suspect that you were pressed on any of these questions, then we would probably hear a lot of different answers, wouldn't we? Some of you here are college students, home on break. Others are military personnel, home on leave. Some of you might be neighbors of the church, those who live close by and figured that Christmas would be as good a time as any to come check out what it is going on down here at St. Paul. A lot of you are probably from out of town, visiting friends and family here in the Austin area for the holidays. And a few of you I know are church members who have secular jobs that require you to work most Sunday mornings. You can be relieved of some of those duties when the holidays roll around. Some of you are members who find an awful lot of other things to do on most of the Sunday mornings. You feel an obligation or desire to come here at Christmas time or other major holidays. And it seems as if God's grace somehow isn't quite necessary enough or important enough to you the rest of the year. And let's face it, there's at least some of you here tonight who have come simply at the urging or the prodding or the cajoling of other family members. You're here a little bit against your will, but you're desirous of keeping some peace and harmony in your family, even if all of this church stuff isn't your thing. Whatever the circumstances or whatever your motives, though, it's good that you're here tonight. Not for the sake of Christ, 
and not for the sake of the church, and not even for the harmony of your human relationships, and not even because getting a little Christianity now and then might make you feel a little bit better or make you live a slightly better life on this earth. It could, of course, but then that's not really the purpose of Christianity, is it? No, it's good that you're here because whether you want to admit it or not, you so desperately need the gifts that God gives here. Because without those gifts, you have no hope. You have no future. Those of you who are familiar with common Christian worship practices have probably already noted that tonight's sermon appears far earlier in the order of worship than it normally would. And in some ways that presents a challenge, but it also gives an opportunity. It's a challenge because if there's one thing that preaching really ought to do above all else, it's to both proclaim and explain God's Word clearly, fully, and without apology for either the offenses or the wonders which that word conveys. Usually, though, the sermon will follow closely on the heels of the appointed Bible lessons for the day. The preacher then has the opportunity to help his hearers fully understand and then apply the truths that those Bible lessons convey in their own lives and in their faith. In this service, you'll note, however, that all the Bible lessons follow the sermon. So you haven't heard them yet. Or at least you haven't heard them yet tonight. So, how to explain to you what you haven't yet heard? Well, tonight, instead of simply elaborating on the Scripture readings, I'm going to take this unique opportunity to give you a preview of them. Consider, if you will, that I'm your coming attractions announcer, just like you might have for a television program or an upcoming motion picture, but with a message that is infinitely more important for you than any of that drivel that's coming from Hollywood or from the networks. Perhaps by giving you an advanced peek of the lessons tonight, you'll be able to listen with fresher ears and sharper minds. For example, in the lesson from Genesis 3, We'll enter the scene just after the verses which tell about the actual fall into sin. But we're going to hear about its aftermath. God, who was in such close fellowship with His creation that He came for evening strolls in the garden with the man and the woman, comes looking for them. He knows where they are, of course, and He knows exactly what has just happened. Yet, in His mercy... God asks the man and the woman some questions so that they might have the opportunity to admit their sinful actions and to repent. But, much like we do, Adam and Eve are going to play the blame game. They're going to externalize the fault of their own disobedience and their own failings. And for their sinful actions and for Satan's evil temptation, there will be consequences. Now, we don't hear in our text tonight about the earthly consequences that are given to the man and to the woman, those sort of things that make even our lives difficult to this day. Those consequences are given out in some later verses. Yet in hearing about God's condemnation of the serpent, we do also hear about the first promise of the Messiah to come. 
the woman's seed. And that's a singular Hebrew noun, meaning a specific individual and not just her offspring in general. That seed would come one day and would destroy the power of the devil himself, freeing the people from the curse of sin, which they had now become infected with. There in Genesis, the first proclamation of the gospel. Then, in Isaiah 9, the prophet declares that the darkness and the death will give way to great light. We who are floundering about, stumbling in the black void of our own ignorance and our sin, we're going to receive the revelation of God's will. It will provide illumination and hope that the curse of death and despair will be removed. Moreover, this new hope will arise out of the birth of a child. Not just an ordinary child, mind you, but one who will carry all the power of God himself. And don't get confused when you hear the word government. It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to plop himself down in Washington and clean up the mess over there. What it really means is that Christ has the full power and the full authority of God Almighty to grant all of those eternal blessings that have been promised throughout the Scriptures. You'll also hear a short list that Isaiah wrote of some of the titles by which the Savior will be known. Each one of those titles describes an important aspect of the work of God in Christ. But listen and look beyond those limited human terms when you come to them, recognizing that while these descriptions of the Christ are certainly accurate and certainly true, they don't even begin to explore the depth and the breadth and the, even the essence of what God has done for us in the birth of Christ. Micah's prophecy will then give us the detail about the geographical location of the birth of the Savior, the small town of Bethlehem. And this prophecy is certainly of critical importance to us to validate the truth that the one who would be known as Jesus of Nazareth because of his upbringing there was really the promised son of King David, born in royal David city. But when you hear that reading about that little out-of-the-way town, Contemplate for a moment that God continually takes the small and the insignificant and the ordinary and he makes divine, amazing things happen with them and to them, to words, to water, to bread and to wine, and to you. Listen closely then to the other verses from that reading in Micah also. Listen to how our alienation from God, the seeming abandonment of his people, will be reversed through the birth of this child. A child whose origins predate those of his ancestors. A child whose identity will become known throughout the whole world and who will bring together people from all nations, Israelite and Gentile alike, into one secure flock and into one Christian brotherhood. As we move into the New Testament readings, rejoice that the Lord chose the eloquent and the detail-oriented Luke to record much of the story of the Savior's conception and birth. First, we will once again meet Mary, the beloved mother of our Lord. And I hope that many of you had the opportunity last Sunday to hear Pastor Knuckles tell us and remind us that Mary was indeed a sinner like you or like I. 
that Mary was chosen by God for his specific purpose and at his specific time. Listen as the angel brings Mary words, words of favor, encouragement, instruction, and hope. Listen to her response, one of curiosity and not of doubt. How will this be? As the angel tells her God's message and brings to her God's very presence, Mary becomes the first and only woman ever to conceive a child just by listening. She expresses willing acceptance of both the joy and the burden and the honor that this will bring to her. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we too also sought such a close relationship with the Lord, one in which we willingly accept both the blessings and the responsibilities that that relationship brings. Then we'll have three excerpts from St. Luke's Gospel. And they will hardly really need any introduction to you, will they? After all, most of you have been hearing Linus proclaim them to you at the Charlie Brown Christmas special for what? 30, 40 years now? But don't let those familiar words fall into a gray fog of background noise this Christmas. Not tonight. Not ever. Marvel instead that God uses the greed and the vanity of Caesar Augustus to force Joseph to take his beloved Mary to Bethlehem at just this certain time. Consider that this tiny baby brought forth in human flesh, contains all of the wholeness of God. Connect those swaddling clothes of Christmas to the grave wrappings of Good Friday. Imagine the Lord of heaven and earth placed in a manger where unclean creatures feed. And remember that feeding upon His flesh and His blood is a privilege that bestows forgiveness and eternal life to we unclean creatures. Listen closely to the angel chorus and realize that they aren't singing about an earthly peace between nations or a just-getting-along harmony between people. No, the angels are proclaiming the reconciliation of mankind with God Himself and the unmerited goodwill that He has shown to us in sending the unblemished Lamb who will take away the sin of the world. Go with the shepherds those who were despised and lowly and avoided. Let the message that has already reached you by the proclamation of the Word lead you too to seek a greater and closer relationship with God and a better understanding of those things that have happened. Notice, if you will, also that the shepherds just didn't slink back into the isolation and the self-absorption of their own lives. First, they went and spread the Word of God to all the people they encountered. They told it in its entirety, in its fullness. And only then did they return to their own lives, glorifying and praising God all the way. So then, that's your little preview of the lessons to come tonight. So keep your ears open. More importantly, keep your hearts open. Because I suspect deep down inside, your answers to some of those questions that I asked you earlier are the same as mine. The who that we are here tonight is this. We are selfish, rotten, and miserable sinners. And we're complete liars if we deny it. We are condemnable and despicable 
and without hope on our own. But it's in the why of all of you being here tonight that everything changes. For whether you're a regular churchgoer or a frequent absentee, and whether you came here eagerly tonight or somewhat begrudgingly, you're here for a very specific reason. You're here because God wanted you to hear the proclamation of his word of hope and salvation. And he used his word, whether previously proclaimed to you or given you by someone else in your family tonight, to bring you here. You see, God doesn't like what it is we've become on our own. He wants to take your rottenness and your selfishness and your rebelliousness And he wants to wrap it, not in swaddling clothes and not in grave clothes, but in the robe of Christ's righteousness, a pure, white, and spotless robe, yet soaked in his sinless and precious holy blood. That change will bring about a brand new who, and it will give you unlimited numbers of whys to continue to seek his words and his wisdom and his love and his gifts. So keep your ears open tonight. That sound that you'll hear in the lessons and in the songs is the Lord God walking through His garden in the cool of the evening asking, Where are you, dear child? Don't hide from Him. He's coming to bring you good news, too. Amen.